This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight we're exploring a topic that was teed up in President Obama's State of the Union address. And it's much on the minds of American policymakers and business leaders. It's the significance of production and manufacturing for America's economic prosperity, including good jobs, and our technological leadership. Now, for years, we've heard about outsourcing and the deindustrialization of America. But it may be useful for our audience to think about a few quick trends that have held true since the 1980s. Let me name four of them. First, U.S. manufacturing output has grown steadily, and the U.S. has remained the world's largest manufacturer measured by total output. Second, nonetheless, manufacturing as a share of our total national economy has declined dramatically because manufacturing has not grown as rapidly as the rest of our economy. To some extent, this decline in manufacturing has happened in every wealthy country, but it's happened much less so in a few others, notably Germany. Third, outsourcing initially began in the low-value-added labor-intensive industries, such as textiles. But progressively over time, we've seen it move up the value chain to sophisticated manufacturing operations around the world that are very much close to the core of the remaining U.S. manufacturing base. And fourth, U.S. manufacturing jobs have declined dramatically even as total output rose because the rapid growth in manufacturing productivity meant that we could do a lot more in output with fewer and fewer workers. Even if manufacturing should shift back to the United States to some proportion, the peak level of employment found in 1978 in manufacturing jobs, a little less than 20 million jobs, will never return to the United States again. Now, against this backdrop, Two new facts have changed the discussion about the future of American manufacturing. First, many American economic leaders on both sides of the aisle in Congress worry that the further erosion of our high-end manufacturing base, and particularly its shift to China, will in the long run erode our ability to be leaders in innovation. And second, there are developments in the economics of how design, production, and marketing work that may be creating the opportunity for production to be moved back to the United States and thereby improve the competitiveness of U.S. firms. So tonight we're going to explore the prospects for changes in the U.S. manufacturing profile with four distinguished leaders of the American technology establishment in electronics, computing, and communications. So let me briefly introduce them to you because their full bios are in your program. Jim Fallows is the national correspondent of The Atlantic and certainly one of the preeminent journalists writing on both Asia and high technology industries over the past 30 years. Paul Jacobs is the chairman and CEO of Qualcomm. Under his leadership, Qualcomm has consolidated its world leadership, leadership in chipsets for smartphones and become a champion of new applications for information and communications technology, such as wireless health devices. William Wong is the CEO of Vizio. Vizio is a remarkable company in that it's an American upstart in the world of consumer electronics. 
Born in the 1980s, Vizio has slugged it out with leading Asian countries in consumer electronics, ranging initially from high-definition televisions through tablets and computers today. And Ted Waite was the founder and CEO of Gateway Computers, one of the companies that made the PC revolution into a household staple in America. He's now the head of the Waite Foundation, and that foundation has supported the work of the Connect Innovation Institute in thinking about the issues of science, technology, and public interest, including innovation and production in America. Let's begin the conversation with Jim Fallows. Jim, as often has been the case in your career, you've advanced a national debate with an influential piece in the last uh, Atlant December's Atlantic, and there you argued that there are reasons why we could think that manufacturing might be able to shift back to the U.S., I wonder if you could sketch that thesis out briefly for us. Yes, I'll give the condensed version since the stage is full of people I'd normally be asking, you know, be interviewing to, to get their judgments. Let me also say first, Peter, thanks to you for having us here. Thanks to Mary, who's been so important in knitting together this UCSD and Atlantic partnership. And I can't let this opportunity go without pointing out somebody in row four, Phil Baker, who is the person who introduced me originally to all the factory contacts I ever had in China, including when I got into the Foxconn factory last fall. So that Thank you. Thank you, Phil. So the purpose of The Atlantic, or most of the the articles we do, is more to detect trends than to announce accomplished or completed facts, because by that time, everybody would know them too. And the the point I was trying to make in this article is not that manufacturing is going to be the new bulwark of U.S. employment, but that the trends were changing. And that after this generation or two of relentlessly negative pressure on the U.S. manufacturing industry and and employment, there are reasons to think that things were moving in the positive direction. And essentially, there were three of them I went into, plus an accompanying article by Charles Fishman. The first was arguing about the changes within China that are complexifying its low-wage manufacturing uh, model. I did uh, spend time in the Foxconn factory last fall, and just you see 150 years' worth of social history Uh, compressed into 30 years in China, and suddenly you have no longer country people who are grateful for any job, but urban kids who are much more demanding, much more fast turnover. This does not remove China's advantages. It doesn't mean they don't have the best infrastructure for manufacturing, but it makes their path harder and more complicated than before. A a fascinating side note, Terry Goh, the head of Foxconn, is now styling himself after Henry Ford, not the anti-Semite Henry Ford, but the guy who, who doubled his workers' wages in 1914. And so that's part of what he's doing. So that's, one is China is becoming more complicated. Second is the argument that Charles Fishman also was making that big American firms are relearning the, the, the value of having control over, uh, over the manufacturing process and the opportunity cost of not doing that. Um, Charles Fishman described GE, I've had more experience with Boeing and their, their, their experience with this, the Dreamliner of having outsourced too much of the design work and other things, and so a sense of big industries of trying to bring more back in-house. And then the third trend I tried to talk about is the effect of very fast cycle times, 3D printers, other things which made it possible for small batch production in, uh, to, to be closer to the design, uh, the design source. And this is all apart from the... Uh, the energy revolution in the Dakotas that you, you know about and the other things which are having a, 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 a virtue for the U.S. I heard just two days ago about one of their manufacturing for the, uh, advantage for the United States. I was in Worcester, Ohio, and I was talking about the pollution in Beijing that has become so horrible that there's now an airlock over the playing field at the Beijing International School so the kids can go outside. There's a company in Worcester, Ohio that makes these things. 
So the Chinese airpocalypse is being a manufacturing boon for the United States. So the point I was making is that, is that a friction in the Chinese scene, a desire for more control on the part of big American industrial firms, and the virtue of fast turnaround technology for small startups in the United States is not going to move all these jobs from Shenzhen back to Ohio, but means the trend will be more positive than it's been for the past generation. That's great and remarkably succinct, Jim. The, uh, you must be a journalist by trade the way you can do that. Uh, I'd like to shift uh, for another perspective by turning to uh, William Wang. Um, William, you're uh, a successful U.S. innovator in a cutthroat business in consumer electronics where margins are uh, often slender and uh, product cycles are fast. So from your business perspective, how do you see the prospects for U.S. production? And maybe more generally, how do you think about production as part of the competitive strategy of your company? Uh, when I started the business 10 years ago, I want to get into the TV business, and I look around myself, and there's not one single TV manufacturer here in the U.S. Uh, Liquid Crystal, there's no component being built in the U.S. Chips, most of the chips is uh, being built in Asia. And uh, forget about manufacturing. All the manufacturing is, uh, is over there. It's manufacturing all the brands. I mean, Samsung, Panasonic, Sony, they're all Asian companies. So our business is innovative in a way that I'm bringing the brand and the technology back to the U.S. So we, did, we never outsourced. We started based on the outsourcing business model, which other people already established for the past 20 or 30 years, such as Apple, HP, Sony, Panasonic. We just went to the same manufacturer who was building those components in Asia, and we used factories such as Foxconn, and it was already established, and uh, we asked them to build it for us, and we sell them here in the U.S. So uh, because we're smaller, we're flexible, we're so nimble, we move a lot faster because technology shifts so fast, we're able to uh, uh, provide better value to the consumer, and uh, we're pretty successful doing that. So we never, I mean, we don't manufacture anything these days, but we're the fastest growing uh, consumer electronic company uh, uh, in the U.S. And uh, I think there's just a lot to learn for other people that uh, in, instead of uh, looking at how do we bring manufacturing back, why don't we look at how do we be innovative and bring business back? You know, we're, 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 we're probably the only we're not profitable, we're not super profitable, but we're the only profitable TV company here in the U.S. So we do pay U.S. taxes versus uh, our competitors, and I think that's, that's, uh, that's the first step. And hopefully someday we can bring more manufacturing back, but uh, uh, that, that will take a lot of cooperation uh, from the government. So just as a quick follow-up, what do you consider to be your core competitive advantage? Uh, we'll move real, pa- real fast. And uh, we listen to our customers. We actually talk to them. We have, a, we have uh, thanks to Ted, we have a couple, couple hundred people in South Dakota and uh, uh, where Gateway used to be. And we, we have 200 some people. Well, the company only has 450 people. Amount of 450, you know, 250 of them are answering phone calls because we want to keep our communication channel open with the consumer versus 
some Asian companies, which is, you know, they're so big and they don't, they build the product because their engineer want to build it that way. We build our product the way consumer uh, very, very like to spend money on. Uh, well, let me uh, uh, switch, in a sense, to the other end of the technology space. Uh, Paul, uh, Qualcomm epitomizes the sort of high-value-added, technology-intensive uh, American technological leadership. And in the 1990s, your business strategy was revolutionary among the traditional telecommunications equipment manufacturers because you moved to outsourcing manufacturing much quicker and more decisively than many of uh, your rivals at the time. And uh, that allowed you to focus on leadership in innovation and component design. So uh, today, uh, you're number one, uh, but you face lots of companies that are, uh, would like to have your position. Uh, I was noticing that Qualcomm has invested uh, in a fab for at least one of your areas in uh, uh, Taiwan, and so maybe you could explain to us today how you think about this issue about manufacturing and your strategy. Yeah, so we... Um didn't outsource per se, because when we had the handset and infrastructure manufacturing businesses, they were actually in San Diego. I mean, we were building handsets not very far away from here in Campus Point. Um, so we sold that business, and we actually thought that the company we sold it to was going to outsource, but it actually took them a while. So they kept it here, and it was mostly because they wanted to be near the engineers, and it was a new product, and the manufacturing was more difficult, and so forth. We still do some manufacturing here. We do sort of new product uh, introduction. Uh, when we build uh, boards and, and phones and things for developers, we do that here. Uh, we have a fab up in uh, uh, San Jose, a development fab. I think it was one of the, probably the last fab that got built in Silicon Valley, but it, it's uh, display manufacturing. So when you're asking about the fab uh, that we have in, in Taiwan, uh, for display. I mean, we built that fab there because the, the expertise wasn't in the United States. Uh, the supply chain wasn't in the United States. And uh, so we really needed to go where, where the expertise was. And the other piece was, um, you know, a, a display fab and a semiconductor fab too, by the way, uh, most of the cost of the product is actually amortization of the cost of building the factory. And we have a lot of offshore sales. 95% of our revenues plus are, are offshore. A lot of money offshore. Um, not because we moved it there, because our customers were, were there. Anyway, so that money, if we brought that back to the United States to build a factory here, we take the cost of paying the U.S. taxes on it. Uh, on why the U.S. has this policy, I, you know, that's another debate. But uh, if we had done that, the factory would have cost that much more. And therefore, the product would have cost that much more. It wouldn't have been competitive. So that whole issue uh, you know, said that the only place to do it was in, in Taiwan. And, and we will go fabulous eventually with that business, which is the way we make our chips. Um, and maybe just to tell that story real quickly, we started off, it was actually Intel that built our chips for us in the earliest days of Qualcomm. Uh, they decided at that time they didn't really want to be a fabulous. They didn't want to provide the factory capability for the chips that we designed. And this whole uh, model, similar to the outsourcing model, the fabulous model got created. And TSMC is probably the biggest known proponent of that. But there are other 
companies that do it as well. Samsung uh, builds some chips for us in Korea. Um, Global Foundries builds some chips for us. In Singapore, they're building a fab in upstate New York now. Uh, the reason why they were able to do that was because there, were an, there was an awful lot of money given by the local government in New York to get them to offset some of the costs of the fab. So, so fabs are, are coming back, but for us, we do absolutely the high value engineering here. We have some people in India doing it, um, and that's sort of the main places that uh, the design gets done, and then the, the manufacturing gets done by TSMC, but it's really because that is where the expertise is. And they built these just enormous fabs, and it's, you know, only a few fabs are even affordable now, and the fabless model allows multiple manufacturers to help offset the cost of building that fab. From our business model, the other thing that it lets us do, much like what William was saying, is it lets us focus on innovation. We're not sitting around trying to think, how do we fill the fab? Oh my God, you know, orders are down, and therefore we're not going to absorb the cost of running the fab, and therefore, you know, that, that will impact our profitability. We just spend our time thinking, hey, what's the next new feature? How do we make something great that will beat our competition? And so that's, that's really why the fabulous model works for us. Great. Uh, let me turn to Ted Waite. Um, Ted, through your foundation, you've been uh, thinking about the future of America as an innovation leader. Um, and I wonder if you could share your perspective on that long-term challenge and if that leads you to any thoughts about the production issue for America as well? Um, <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, I've given this a lot of thought. When you look at what's the future of the, the U.S. economy and when you look at, you know, where the manufacturing jobs are going to come from. And I think, you know, if you look at it, these guys made decisions to manufacture or not manufacture. In most cases, it's a strategic decision rather than a cost decision in a lot of cases. If you outsource manufacturing or you're, not, or you're going to do it yourself or you're going to have someone, someone else do it. Um, you know, at Gateway, in our, our early days, manufacturing was a core competency. We did it because we, we had to. We custom configured. We were close to the customer. We moved quicker. And it was, it was an advantage. As the company moved forward, as the products commoditized, as the customer need for differentiation wasn't there as much, it wasn't as much of an advantage, and it wasn't as important. And we were diversifying our product line away from, uh, away from PCs. Um, so, you know, if you look at it going forward, you know, like what can the, you know, William said, well, if the government could do something, I would, I could, you could manufacture products. So what could happen at like the, the national level, or the state level in order to increase manufacturing uh, jobs in the U.S.? And I, I think it is, as Paul said, and William saw this in their situation, in a lot of cases, those products that just couldn't be made in the U.S., um, there's not the supply chain. There aren't the components there. The, each of the pieces that you have to have aren't there, and it's just not, not efficient. Uh, in a lot of cases, there isn't the, 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 the workforce. Um, they're not trained. They're not, uh, they're not, uh, uh, you know, n not there because you don't have the full infrastructure. So, you know, what could the government do to really play a, play a role? Um, you know, there's, yeah, there's one with, with training of, uh, of, of, the, of the workforce, having a having the great workforce there. Uh, there's some tax incentives and things that, uh, um, uh, uh, that, that, Paul, that Paul mentioned earlier. But I think what, what you have to think about is how do you create a, really a playing field for a whole industry? Uh, what you've seen outside the U.S., what, what China's done in some cases, they can look forward and they say, here's the big areas for growth uh, in the future. Um, you know, the, the, the federal government... Isn't great at looking into the future. Sometimes having trouble with today, <laughs> much less being more reactive. Uh, so I, I'm not don't have a whole lot of confidence that the federal government can create a lot of jobs. You see some great things happening at the state level, 
uh, you know, at the end of the day, we have to create an environment where companies can succeed, uh, where they can create jobs, uh, and where they can manufacture. And, and hopefully that'll come from some of, the, some of these industries that are developing in the future. So. Great. Uh, Jim, you've heard uh, three uh, perspectives on uh, the prospects for production, both how people think about it today and where they think going down the line. I wonder how you react to that in light of the trends that you were trying to see might be developed. Yes, and of course, these people are the actual experts are the ones I, I interview and try to find out insights from. Also, you can tell there are three successful business people on this panel and two analyst academics. The necktie seems to be the, 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 the penalty. <laughs> This is how you can tell if there's a low ceiling on your, your aspirations. I, I, guess, <laughs> I guess as I've thought, uh, you know, heard what, what uh, these panelists are saying, here are a couple of thoughts that come to, to my mind. One is, it seems to me, you know, you all have, been, have founded startup businesses that have grown from being a small to, to, to very important businesses. I think a proper focus for our efforts in manufacturing and other things is how to foster new businesses that will, as opposed necessarily to seeing the big existing ones. I'm realizing now I am old enough to have visited for the Atlantic Apple computer when it had fewer than 100, uh, 100 employees and Google when it had about 15 employees. Again, consistent with my necktie, I didn't invest in any of them and I just <laughs> went, went, went to write about them. Also, on the other hand, I visited Capro in Solana Beach when it was a, uh, a, a, a glimmer. But I, I think that, that the one appropriate target for our policy is the environment for new companies, which the U.S. is uniquely fertile in creating, I think, and making sure they can do their, their manufacturing here. A second point that strikes me is obvious but worth emphasizing, which is the inextricable complexity of the world's production chains now. Things are going to be made all over the place, and the question is how can the U.S. get a relatively larger share of the high-value work rather than a relatively smaller share of that work? It's not as if China or Korea or anybody else is going to be cut out, but how can we uh, work the, uh, the whole range of advantages so we get more of them. My favorite prop, which Peter has seen, is I have an, an iPad in here, and it's all made in southern China, but only about 10% of the value still stays in southern China, and more stays, much more stays in the U.S. So how to, how to make sure that equation works in our, in, in our, our, our favor. And it can, I saw an example of that uh, just about two weeks ago in northern California. There's a very, very interesting biotech company that is working out a way that it's going to have its low-end assembly done in China, but again, 80% of the value is staying in the Bay Area versus the assembly work in, in China. A third point that I think is important is, is wondering, is returning to your initial question, Peter, of why we want manufacturing. And the idea is it has disproportionately, it doesn't have the highest-end salaries, many of the services have that, but it has high middle salaries. This is the way you have an industrial middle class is through manufacturing jobs. Also, it fosters future manufacturing. So it, we can think of national policies that have done one thing or another and how they've had that effects. China, where I've been spending a lot of my time, they do, as you say, have a sort of pro-industrial policy, but so far it's been much more effective in getting these low-wage Dickensian jobs than much more than that. So it's been effective, sort of. They've been much more scrambling when it comes to higher and uh, productions. Germany, as you mentioned, they, they've tried very hard to keep, to sort of protect their, um, their high-wage uh, manufacturing jobs and have been successful in ways that we can study but seem alien to the U.S. political tradition. And the U.S. has had a long-standing industrial policy, which is defense contracting. 
defense contracting and biotech research are really the only ways we feel sort of a clean about doing a industrial policy. Many of your companies have directed, uh, have benefited indirectly fr from that. But it's that so. So if we could think about ways in which we either foster industries through the ways we can do it, uh, military or, or health contracting, or deal with the consequences of a, a income distribution that, it, that is, is polarized. Um, finally, one point that strikes me is, having spent a lot of my recent life outside the U.S., I'm more bullish about the U.S. long-term innovation capacity than many people may be, just because we still do get an outside share of the world's talent that nobody else really can do in the, the same way. And so I, I think that if we don't keep getting in our, our own way, we'll, we'll be all right in fostering more of these companies and having their work be done here. Well, let me follow up on that last point quickly. Uh, Paul, Qualcomm, I think, has been one of the companies that has been uh, part of the discussion about the reform of U.S. immigration policy because this issue of having a talent base in the U.S. Uh, is one that we can't take for granted. I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, I mean, it's just uh, the immigration debate's going on right now, and clearly high-skilled immigration has been held up for quite some, some time because, you know, from a political standpoint, we needed to get comprehensive immigration reform. And that seems like it's moving. I mean, you know, will Washington get anything done is a good question, but, um, but that does seem like it's moving now. But it is a strange thing. You know, you look at the statistics in terms of the number of foreign-born uh, graduate students, and then yet we send many of them home because we can't give them jobs here because they don't get visas here. And you know, in fact, we have a fairly large facility in India now. I mean, much larger in the United States, but still we have a large facility in India. And part of that is because sometimes people have to go back to India, and that's where they're, you know, they're they're. Uh, they can't get a visa. Or the people that come here, I mean, it's, it's very strange, too. You, you can get a visa for them, H-1B visa for them, but there are all these restrictions. Their spouse can't work. Or we tell them, don't leave the country because you may, even though you have a visa, you may get stopped at the border and you can't come back in. And people try and portray this as you're trying to get lower uh, wage people to fill the job. That's completely not true. It's really not true that, uh, that these foreign-born uh, uh, employees are getting paid less and, and so forth. Um, I think that, you know, that was just sort of a concocted thing to, to make a statement. And, and in fact, um, you know, I, th I think you know, if you go look at uh, you know, any, of the, any of the statistics, I don't, I don't think they bear that up. So in any case, we're, we'll get that. Now, I, I did want to make one other point, though, about, um, I mean, the jobs are not necessarily de Dickensian and, uh, and low wage in a semiconductor fab or in a display fab or these things where you know, they're very, very sophisticated machines. People are fairly highly skilled, in some cases very highly skilled, to run them. Uh, so we need those people to be trained and, and come here in order to get those jobs here. Um, in the point about uh, immigration, I think that there's a, an important facet about the employment complex that uh, we often forget in the manufacturing debate, which is that more and more of the jobs associated with what we used to think of as manufacturing are, in fact, service jobs. Uh, if you look at the actual employment numbers, uh, the uh, service component to manufacturing is probably a third of the total uh, employment that can be attributed to the manufacturing sector. 
It's ranges from the people who do marketing and customer service and branding to the people who are the designers and the technology innovators. So that a picture of production is really a picture of both services and uh, uh, manufacturing itself. Uh, I wonder uh, if I could ask uh, William uh, about the issue that's often talked about, about speed. When you, when you read the articles that say there may be the beginnings of incentives to return production to the United States, they often argue that the uh, time to get product from the offshore plant back to the U.S., uh, while once acceptable, as product cycles quicken even more, is too long. And so people may at least want to move production back to, let's say, Mexico rather than China. How do you think about that claim? Uh, for, for TV, we, we do a lot of manufacturing in Mexico. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, I think uh, about 40% of our TV was uh, finally uh, assembled right here in, in Tijuana. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, for, for the TV is about eight seven hundred dollar a piece. Mm-hmm. The final assembly labor contents is really a small portion of it. I mean, it's two or three dollars. All right, compared to uh, cloth, well, maybe it's just uh, eighty or ninety percent of the cost of good. For for TV set, we're, we're we're not outsourcing because of labor. I mean, we're manufacturing in Mexico, we're manufacturing in China. A majority of our costs go to a place like Japan, Korea, Taiwan. And I, I, I say less than 10% is, uh, go to China. But uh, low-cost labor is not the only problem. The problem is we don't have any uh, components here. The entire supply chain is over there. And, uh, and also, the, the flexibility and therefore speed of doing business is so much greater, faster over there versus here. Uh, that uh, is a source of chagrin to many Americans to hear that uh, uh, the pace is faster and the uh, uh, rapidity of innovation it may be faster at these sorts of ground levels. You, you said something that maybe we should uh, tease out a bit for the sake of our audience, uh, which is uh, you said the majority of the costs go to uh, companies in Japan and Korea, even if the production is in Mexico. Could you explain why that's so? Yeah, let, let's take the TV apart. The liquid crystal fab are in, most of the fab we use is in Korea and Japan. And uh, those are the uh, really expensive machineries that U.S. doesn't have. And uh, a lot of uh, the money for, for glass, glasses, actually go, a lot of them go to Corning here in the U.S., and uh, uh, a big, huge portion of the intellectual property, uh, uh, chips, and uh, uh, software, is also in here in the U.S. I would say probably 30% of the cost of, of, of good. And what's remaining in China is mechanical, which is nobody want to do here. <laughs> it's dirty and, uh, and uh, polluting air, and... Uh, uh, plastics, which is a really small fraction of the total cost of goods on the, on the TV sets. Very interesting. Uh, if I could ask uh, uh, Ted for a moment, uh, if you put on your entrepreneur and venture hat, if you were going to go out and try a new area of business tomorrow that's innovative and 
uh, technology-driven, uh, and you were thinking of something that uh, you would try to grow out of this uh, uh, richer uh, base that you'd like to establish in the U.S., where would you try? I mean, if you were just placing a, a bet. Oh, that's a... <clears throat> I wish I knew the answer to that, actually, as I'd, I'd be actually betting on it. Um, so but, um, so I, I think you've got to look and say, say what, are, what are some of the trends for the, uh, uh, for the, for the future? Um, clearly, I always go back to basics, you know, um, food, energy, um, transportation, uh, uh, those types of things. So there's a lot of things on green energy. There's a lot of things on healthy, healthy food. Um, and there's a lot of areas we can be an innovator on. So I think when it comes back to this whole discussion, I think it might not be always necessary to have the discussion in terms of manufacturing jobs. It should just be jobs. Um, and maybe we don't care. As William, I think, did a great job saying, you know, it, it, it's a global thing. We're, we live in a global world, and it shouldn't really matter if there's a part made in Japan, a part made in China, and there's a part made here. It's what, what are we doing? So we should we talk about how can you create companies uh, and how do you, you create ideas and innovation? Uh, and that's where the jobs are going to come from. And whether it's made here or made there, does it, does it really matter that much as long as we're all working together and the products are are, you know, everybody's kind of benefiting, and that's the, the way it should be. So what areas would I kind of pick for the future? Um, well, I, I don't know. The one I, I think is going to be huge, and there's a lot of things happening in it, uh, is this whole area of autonomous vehicles, I think. But that's one where I think it really takes a big uh, government innovation. Uh, could that be like the next Internet? Um, you know, all the pieces are there to have you know, vehicles that can drive themselves. It's safer, it should be far, far more efficient, uh, and it create a whole area of software development, uh, hardware development, sensors, a whole industry can be created around this, and it can change the way, uh, if you look at the way the automobile changed the infrastructure and the fabric of this country, uh, we could see another change. Uh, and it might be scary to some because it might actually dislocate and displace a lot of jobs, you know, drivers and a lot of basic jobs. But it's the type of thing when I look at it that it could really, really be a huge thing. Now, that's probably somebody's going to have to put a, a stake in the ground and say, if we're really going to have autonomous vehicles and driverless ca- cars, it's going to have to be happen by a certain point in time. Um, and they should be safer, more efficient, uh, and it should save people money, and it should create a heck of a lot of jobs in the process. But it's kind of scary to get there. But that's one I'd, I'd, I'd like to see happen. I don't know if it's too early to bet on. So uh, if uh, I can push the boundaries here a little bit, uh, um, Paul, uh, one of the arguments that's made sometimes about why uh, we might see production uh, at least vector back a bit more to the United States is that uh, customization of products uh, is going to grow. And certainly some of the people who argue uh, about the next generation of applications of information and communications technology, which broadband mobile is going to enable, uh, are really pointing to, in a sense, things like personalized medicine, uh, specialized devices for healthcare, all the things that you and wireless health have tried to champion. Um, and so I wonder if that type of movement, where we start to take things that uh, weren't typically allowed to be organized in mass production, that information communications allowing us to transform may open the realm to a bunch of customized products of whether they're goods or services or combinations of them that would open up uh, new opportunities in the U.S. I think there's you know, a lot of 
discussion around uh, these uh, 3D printing technologies and sort of this rapid manufacturing, rapid prototyping kind of stuff. And um, I'm a very, very strong believer in that. I believe in it um, not just for personalization, but for design. Because today, a lot of times what people do when they build software products is that they have the ability to iterate and test, iterate and test, and they can rapidly improve the way that people interact with their website or application, whatever it is. The same thing's true now uh, for, for products also. And so I'm really excited about that opportunity for you know, physical devices to be iterated on. And so the software and the hardware together will be, will be moving quickly. And um, it's actually a challenge that uh, I'm trying to, trying to get the engineering universities to start thinking that because we don't really teach our, our engineering students to think that way when, when they think about hardware. So, so that I think that, that'll be a big trend. It will then translate into more of this mass customization, personalization. And I think healthcare certainly is a, an important thing because there may be things that have to be very, very customized to, to yourself. But I think this will be something that will be a much broader thing. And then there's all the implications about physical goods now being more intellectual property, much like our chips. When we design the chips here, it's a, what we send to Taiwan to actually have it turned into a physical good, it's just bits. And when we want to test it, it's bits that get loaded into a machine to make sure that that thing worked. And so it's all been virtualized in a certain way. And now it may be that you know, this chair will be virtualized in, in not too distant future. And, and so that will create you know, huge opportunities. And, and I think then that also creates the, the possibility that things will be much more, I mean, hyper-localized, not just do we have manufacturing in the United States, but do we have manufacturing in our house? Mm -hmm. So uh, for those of you who are looking forward to your union card on... Uh, <laughs> I personally had an electrician's card as a youth, and I may dust it up again. Uh, the, um, um, uh, so the customization and personalization uh, in this image that Paul just painted is, is one way of thinking about the future. Uh, Jim, uh, in going around and reporting, um, uh, the standard story that I noticed journalists uh, run, uh, not you, but uh, the accompanying piece in the Atlantic certainly fit that, and the latest Time magazine cover uh, did it, is everybody goes to General Electric and says, General Electric is making appliances again in Kentucky. Uh, and this is the proof of the trend. Uh, so why is GE making appliances in Kentucky? And... Uh, it is, and so that's a fact. What is it that makes that viable, whereas for William, this is an impossible thought? I will buy time before answering that. I have to go back to the neckties again. I, I'm, I'm thinking back on Downton Abbey. If you reflect on the people who are best dressed in Downton Abbey, it's the butlers and the footmen. They're the ones wearing the tuxedos, and it's the lords and the noblemen who are wearing the, the casual clothes. So I think we see a, a recreation of uh, a... <laughs> of World War I England here in uh, San Diego of 2013. So I assume that, that you know, any, any product is a combination. So the, the, 
The argument that Charles Fishman asserted in his article was that this is one little data point of GE recognizing that it's intellectual property and it's on the shop floor learning. We're so important that it couldn't let that, that go away. I think also when you're talking about gigantic heavy goods like refrigerators and, and washing machines, the cost of bringing these things from China is a very, becomes a very significant part of it. And the labor cost you know, becomes a, a not, not worthwhile difference. And so I think that that is a, an interesting story and I would never be other than, than completely admiring of any article in, in our magazine. But I think there's some other trends that may be more, more significant. I, I do find that the Boeing case a very important one because you know, they have had to, like Airbus, internationalize their production as part of uh, how they court customers. But I think they realized with the Dreamliner they did too much of that and they lost too much control of outsourcing the actual design. And so coming back to the theme we've all said, it's a big, complicated world. People are going to be sharing work and finding ways we can have more good jobs for our people within our borders one way or another is what we'll be thinking of. So uh, let me ask the panel as a whole about one issue that has been mentioned fleetingly but uh, is quite important to every company, which is the protection of intellectual property. And I certainly, uh, in the time that I served in the Obama administration, had more than one company come to me and say that they were reluctant to see uh, uh, production of their most critical components in China because they worried about the protection of intellectual property. And I think, Jim, some of your reporting from China uh, addressed this as well. Um, Is there, in the world that uh, Paul painted uh, for the future, one where everything may be subject to really uh, increased intellectual property inputs. Uh, is it going to be, become a requisite for being a higher-end manufacturing center to assuage people that there is some credible protection of intellectual property? Jim, because uh, you, like me, is, are wearing a tie and you're freer <laughs> to comment without uh, commercial uh, implications, uh, maybe you want to take this on. Uh, yes, I, I do think that, that that's very much a, a factor. And as you know, Peter, one of the things I've argued in, in my recent book and other places is that this is one of several crossroads that China will have to either cross or not if it wants to go from being a sort of Foxconn type of country to a GE type of of country or GE, Siemens, Sony, Mitsubishi of having their own factories because right now the ceiling for China's own innovators is recognizing that their own property can be uh, pirated by somebody else. I've met, met a guy in Shanghai about six months ago, a very energetic and, and, and hotshot young uh, Shanghai electrical engineer who's born in China, speaks Chinese, doesn't speak English, but he's incorporating his new company in Palo Alto so as to protect you know, the intellectual property of it. So I think that, that, that we'll find... It's interesting that the, the countries that have high-wage corporations that generate wealth in, uh, in, North, in Western Europe and in Japan and in South Korea and, and North America all have these traits of sort of civil society more broadly. They have rule of law. They have independent universities, independent media, and cop- intellectual property protection. None of those does China have now, and if they can produce them, then it will be a different, richer society. If they don't, I think there'll be a, a limit for them. Okay. Um, I'm not going to uh, ask you, Paul, to comment on intellectual property in China. Uh, I have a, a, unless you want to. But uh, I wonder if you could talk about uh, the atmosphere for intellectual property in India, where, as you noted, you have a, a growing group in design work and other key functions for Qualcomm. I'm happy to talk about China, too. I mean, you know, we've actually been 
fairly successful in terms of licensing our technologies in China. In terms of building the products, um, you know, we build them in Taiwan, so it depends on your definition of China. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, I don't, you know, we don't, we don't worry about that too much. And uh, we, we have had issues in the past, and not just in those, uh, those two countries and other places as well. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we do in order to try and mitigate that issue, I mean, among other things, is we just run extremely fast. And the technology is changing very rapidly. And in fact, that's how we maintain our margins is by continuing to bring new innovations. And so to the extent that people can steal things, which they can, um, you know, it's just hard for them to get it to market quick, quickly enough and be able to support the customers in the way that we can support them. So there are other barriers to competition besides just the design of, of the product. Um, India, you know, I, I think it's, it's in its formative process as well. There is not today much manufacturing, at least in our industry, that's going on there. So we don't, don't really deal with that. From a standpoint of design, um, has not, that has not been an issue for us at all. So, um, you know, I, I would say we worry about intellectual property protection, but um, if you're worried about designs being stolen, people can hack into systems anywhere in the world. And in fact, we just fundamentally believe our systems have been hacked into and information is available and you find things every so often floating around on the web. And, you know, it's, you know, it's a little bit of Wild West and you do the best that you can and then you run as fast as you can too just to stay ahead of that and, and try and build all the other barriers to entry that you can. Right. Does this uh, matter at all in your uh, decision-making, William? Yeah. Well, Tell us about Bar- business is all, all, all source. Right. So the biggest fear we have is how do we challenge the manufacturer who took our idea and built it for somebody else? You can't really sue anybody who is also your supplier. So, so that's the intellectual property problem. I'm sure you have. The we don't. Problem. We don't have that issue. Don't because, have that yeah, because because the, the chips, it's pretty hard to yeah. be hard for them to do that. We wouldn't be able to tell. Yeah, it's easy for TV. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's, it's been a challenge. Um, uh, one last follow-up uh, question for you, uh, William. In Describing your uh, advantages, uh, um, you've particularly focused in describing the U.S. market. Do you have uh, uh, ambitions for a broader expansion of your global market in terms of uh, where you're selling and where you would like significant market share? Yeah, well, um, I like to sell a product in China. <laughs> There's uh, the the demand on TV sets in China is greater than U.S. now, and uh, what four or five times more populations, and uh, the, the future potential there is great. The only problem we're having is, is uh, it's hard to compete with uh, local uh, uh, companies, which is uh, being subsidized by the communist government. So there's, it's not a fair game. I mean, they don't have to worry about balance sheet. I mean, if we lose money, we'll lose money. If they lose money, the government will give them more money. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's difficult, but we're working on 
of course, we, we, we try to expand anywhere else in the world, but the biggest market, the biggest future potential will be China. So uh, if we could, uh, at this stage, uh, make sure that the cards from the audience are coming up so that I can uh, uh, start getting ready for that. But uh, I'd like to close this part of the discussion by returning to the issue of whether there are policy choices that could be made in the United States uh, that would uh, enhance our production base. And let's say the production base is not just classic manufacturing, but it's manufacturing and the related uh, service industries and uh, all the components of design and innovation tied to it. And we heard earlier that uh, the tax policy of the U.S. matters a great deal because uh, more and more our markets are overseas, and if we're going to repatriate those profits, the tax policies of the U.S. make it harder to repatriate profits to invest again in the U.S. effectively. We heard that immigration policy has uh, been cramping one of our classic uh, advantages uh, as a country, which is our open doors to talent and uh, the flexibility of our labor market. And we've heard from Ted that he has a feeling that at the local and regional level, there are probably things that we could do that we haven't done yet. Uh, I wonder if there are any other nominees for policy changes that we should see uh, in the United States in order to improve the environment for production? All the ones you've said sound sensible to me. The other only one I would add is part of the reason the United States has a world-leading biotech industry and has for decades is National Institutes of Health, which year after year, decade after decade, is supporting basic research in this field. And I think there are other areas, including transportation, clean energy, et cetera, where that same kind of long-term, stable, non-sequester panicked uh, investment would be a plus. Uh, I also heard uh, Paul start to tease out something about the way in which the American Research University, which has always been closely tied to our leadership in technology, might interact as, as the world changes around it. Uh, the example you gave of changing engineering training to take advantage of uh, the ability to iterate designs with 3D printers. Um, I wonder if there are other things as well that uh, can be explored in this area. And to turn to uh, two that I would just mention, uh, the chief scientist of Israel has a policy that he supports to take uh, computer scientists out of PhD programs and subsidize them to spend time in small and medium-sized enterprises to just poke around to figure out if, in fact, this revolution in information and communications technology is translating itself into the local uh, firms that are trying to scale up. And that, too, is a way of transferring technology and information without a big plan, but by making talented people available at a reasonable cost. Uh, and in the last issue that I think uh, we heard about sophisticated uh, production is that uh, it takes very, very skilled labor for even uh, the uh, uh, manufacturing that we do have. And uh, if I can give a plug to Mary Walshock uh, in her work, she has uh, been stressing the fact that the skills sets that are coming out of uh, the United States no longer fit that higher-end manufacturing as, as a, a challenge for us going forward. 
so that uh, in the area that we've always taken great pride in, which is the skills of the American labor force, we may be starting to face uh, a mismatch as we go forward. Um, So uh, with that said, I wonder if I could get the cards here and open this up to our audience. And I see we have lots of questions. Now, I feel like the Academy Awards, where I'm ripping open the envelope. Uh, So why is it that Germany has such a strong manufacturing base, given the relatively high wages paid versus the other Eurozone countries? Um, My first response is, that's a good question. Uh, My second response is, I wish I knew more about the answer. And I I would would direct you to the wonderful book by Tom Gagan called Were You Born on the Wrong Continent? which is essentially about this. He's spent a a year living in Germany and tried to address this question. My understanding is that many things which are anathema in American political culture and American economic thought, for example, very strong trade unions, very strong apprenticeship programs, very direct government involvement in making sure that that German manufacturing capacity is, is enhanced, uh, those things have, within the particular circumstances of Germany, worked out. Uh, France has tried the same, some of the same things with less, uh, less effect. I mean, some effect uh, for the rest of Europe, it's a, you know, I have, have relatives in Italy that has not worked out so well. But I think that, that, that for Germany, it is, it is traits of government policy uh, that, that have, have paid out and been, have been surprisingly non-controversial. Paul, what cell phone do you use and how often do you change it? <laughs> Uh, I change my phone all the time, and I actually go back and forth between different phones. So I, somewhere I got an iPad mini with me, and I have a LG phone in my pocket, and let's see, I have probably one of every manufacturer you can think of sitting on my desk back at work, and, because obviously when you go visit people, you want to make sure you carry the right phone. <laughs> <laughs> So, Jim, I'm going to turn to you for the uh, uh, last question of the evening. Uh, uh, You've always been a thought leader, and the Atlantic has done a superb job in playing that role in the national discussion in uh, the recent years. Um, So next December, you have to write an article about, is the global production scene changing after you've had this conversation? How will the article read next December compared to last December based on the conversation tonight? Uh, next December would be much more richly informed by examples from, from all, all my colleagues here. And I think would emphasize the fact that our political discussion of this issue, like all issues, tends to be um, unhelpfully simplified, polarized. You know, it's in China or it's here, it's black or it's white and emphasizing the inextricable complexity of these economic interactions that are going to continue, and how can we, in this entwined world, find ways to create more of what we want? What, what, how, is there other things the government can actually do that will help, whether it's transportation initiatives or whether it's, um, whether it's, it's educational programs or whatever? So I, I, I guess the main thing I would stress differently, stress more clearly, is it's a great, big, connected, productive world, and how do we make our part of it as beneficial for our, par- for our people as it can be, as opposed to a contrast, it's here in the U- U.S. versus China. It's every place, and let's have more of the good stuff here. Right. 
If I could uh, put in a final plug uh, for the uh, Connect Innovation Institute, which uh, Dwayne Roth has been a champion of, uh, in the studies that we've done there, one of the points that we've made is that many of these new opportunities, whether in personalized medicine or biotech or the emerging uh, companies of the future dealing with the products that will come out of this information and communication revolution's next stage, uh, you could imagine the growth not of mass production facilities, but of the equivalent to the TMSCs that are geared to facilitate smaller manufacturers and the rest. And certainly one of the most interesting developments in U.S. government policy is that DARPA, which was the seed funding for the Internet and many great innovations, is now in the business of funding essentially high-tech tinkering shops in key regional centers around the United States in order to see if we can grow clusters of specialists in these new scaled production and design and innovation capacity. So I think that uh, for me, the takeaway from tonight is exactly Jim's, which is that this is a story where we are embedded in a global production system. The debate about the future of production in the United States is not about taking back en masse what is left, because it's left for important reasons that make sense in global business, but for creating new grounds for production understood as broadly services, innovation, and manufacturing in an America that is conducive to taking advantage of the next big changes in the world. And I thank you all for being a wonderful audience tonight. And on behalf of all of us, let's give a round of applause to our panelists. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.